0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Mercenaries, the Persian Army, Renaissance Italy, and Vladimir Putin. The date, July 2023, and my name is Bell Avis. From the movie, The Godfather Two, Michael Corleone states, I saw a strange thing today. A rebel was being arrested by the military police and rather than be taken alive, he exploded a grenade he had hidden in his jacket. He killed himself and took a captain of the command with him. Now, soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. Hyman Roth asks, what does that tell you? And Michael responds, that they could win. I say therefore, that the arms with which a prince defends his state are either his own, or they are mercenaries, auxiliaries, or mixed. Mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless and dangerous. And if one holds his state based on these arms, he will stand neither firm nor safe. For they are disunited, ambitious, and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies." They have neither the fear of God nor fidelity to men, and destruction is deferred only so long as the attack is. For in peace one is robbed by them, and in war by the enemy. The fact is, they have no other attraction or reason for keeping the field than a trifle of stipend, which is not sufficient to make them willing to die for you. They are ready enough to be your soldiers, whilst you do not make war. But if war comes, they take themselves off or run from the foe, which I should have little trouble to prove. For the ruin of Italy has been caused by nothing else than by resting all her hopes for many years on mercenaries. And although they formerly made some display and appeared valiant amongst themselves, yet when the foreigners came, they showed what they were. Niccolo Machiavelli from The Prince published in 1532 CE. Part of the success of Cyrus the Great, founder of the first Persian or Achaemenid Empire, was in developing an elite corps of mounted warriors skilled at shooting arrows on horseback and deployed war chariots with blades attached to the wheels. His troops seem to have been highly motivated and well-trained, and he seems to have been able to move his armies more rapidly than enemies anticipated, even during winter, writes Christopher Beckwith in his book, The Scythian Empire. This historian places the titular peoples as the progenitor of Cyrus' forces and their success. Given the vast wealth of Persia, at some point members of the royal family Well, they began to dabble in hiring mercenaries. The most famous of these was Xenophon's 10,000, as chronicled in the historian Xenophon's Anabasis, the 10,000. This was a motley assortment of Greek warriors contracted by Cyrus the Younger to help oust his brother, King Artaxerxes II, from the Persian throne. In 401 BC, the Hellenic soldiers for hire many of them hardened veterans of the Peloponnesian War, fought alongside Cyrus and his rebel army in a clash with the king's forces near modern-day Baghdad. While the 10,000 held their own in combat, Cyrus was killed in the battle, and the mercenaries' generals were double-crossed and murdered while trying to negotiate a retreat. Under pursuit from Artaxerxes II's troops and hostile natives alike, the surviving 10,000 members were forced to band together and fight their way out of enemy territory. Remember, they have to go from Baghdad, which is in modern-day Iraq, all the way to Greece. After electing Xenophon as one of their new leaders, the army of rogues embarked on a grueling nine-month odyssey that took them from the heart of Babylonia to the Greek Black Sea port at Trapezus, Despite facing constant ambushes, punishing weather, and famine, they arrived on friendly soil with nearly three-fourths of their numbers intact. Xenophon's account of the 10,000's fighting retreat has since become a classic tale of heroism, and even inspired the 1979 cult film The Warriors. Okay, at no point did the Persians yell, Hey Xenophon! come out and play. If you have not seen the movie, then watch the trailer and you'll understand my phraseology there. And if you are a millennial or Gen Z, watch the movie. It will be way better than any of the latest superhero or Star Wars tripe on TV today. Some 200 years after Cyrus, when Alexander Macedon began his conquest of Persia, the first force he faced was not a Persian army, but a 4 higher Greek one at the Battle of the Granicus, and it was one of his harder-fought battles. Here, though, there is some blurring of the lines. Though the Greeks at the Granicus were undoubtedly mercenaries, others under Persian King Darius III, who fought battles like the one in Issus, were technically part of the Persian Empire and therefore obligated to fight. But no one could mistake the ardor of Bactrians or Indians as comparable to that of the Persians, who were of the same ethnicity as their ruler. In contrast with Alexander's victorious forces, by contrast, were largely Macedonian or from Greece proper. If the Persians under Darius III found mercenaries problematic as an adjunct to his core forces, medieval and renaissance Italy, armed out the entire combat. We began this podcast with a quote from Machiavelli, who, as a member of the government of Florence, saw how a fractured Italy played into the hands of her enemies, and frankly the Italy of that time was dominated by French kings marching from the north, or Aragonese and later Habsburg's rulers from the west. Machiavelli also saw how mercenary companies caused havoc in his country. When he was writing those words, he wasn't writing them from a philosophical point of view, but rather from real-time knowledge. And they even had a unique name, the Condottieri, were Italian captains in command of mercenary companies during the Middle Ages and later of multinational armies during the early modern period. They notably served popes and other European monarchs during the Italian Wars of the Renaissance and the European Wars of Religion, in the 16th century. Mostly, these mercenary companies preferred to avoid pitch battles and instead focus on sieges for starving cities into submission. The condottieri knew that sending hired men into a pitched battle might involve a revolt, thus best avoided. One of the first and most infamous of these groups was the White Company, a member of the so-called free companies or bands of for-profit soldiers who conducted the lion's share of warfare in 14th and 15th century Italy. The unit first rose to prominence in the 1360s before falling under the command of Sir John Hawkwood, an Englishman who had been knighted for his service in the Hundred Years' War. And one of the things I should note, it's interesting how when we look at all of these mercenary groups, how many of them seem to have formed after a big war. We had already seen that in Xenophon's case, his men largely came from, the, if you will, almost the dregs and the leavings of the end of the Peloponnesian War. And what we're seeing here is after the 100 Years' War, there were these British soldiers, well, without a lot to do. One of the challenges is always after the end of a big war, you have all of these soldiers and some of them, well, they get a taste for it. With Hawkwood at the helm, the White Company became known as one of Italy's most elite mercenary armies. Its troops, well really not just English, a kind of a cultural hodgepodge of English, German, Breton, from Brittany, and Hungarian adventurers, were renowned for their skill with the longbow and the lance, and they terrified opponents with their lightning-quick surprise attacks and willingness to do battle during harsh weather or even at night. Hawkwood and his company fought under several banners, often, and I love this, here is the core of the mercenary, often changing sides and exploiting shifting alliances for his personal benefit. He was known for exploiting both sides of a conflict, accepting a contract from one side, demanding payment from the other, to not attack them, and then changing sides and keeping payment from both, or even accepting brides not to work with the enemy. I love that. So just to be clear, you hire Hawkwood, great, very clear, he's going to fight by war. The problem is he's going to go talk to the to the other company and maybe cut a deal, or worse, to the other guy who hired the other company to cut a deal to not attack. I love this guy. Nonetheless, Hawkwood was, well, very successful Which is really weird, he was a popular condottieri at the head of a disciplined company. One of Hawkwood's secrets, though, was that he did maintain control over his men. One of the reasons that George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones is so compelling is that, as the author freely admits, he bases so much of his narrative on historical figures, events, and in this case, actual companies. So it is with his band of free companies, he actually calls them that in his books, who carry names such as the Golden Company, the Second Sons, and the Brave Companions, who he bases in his fictional Essos. Now, speaking of Italy, if you have visited the Vatican in Rome, you've probably seen a real-life mercenary, as we shall illustrate later. But mercenaries could also be used as bodyguards, and we'll see those with the Vatican, not necessarily as an invading or conquering army. Historian Peter Prescar writes, It was common in the Roman Republic to hire non-Romans as bodyguards. Even Julius Caesar had Germanic bodyguards. The first Roman Emperor Augustus created the Imperial German bodyguard, balancing the power of the Praetorian Guard. He temporarily disbanded his Germanic bodyguards after the catastrophic Roman defeat by the Germanic tribes in the Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE, but his descendants restored Germanic warriors as their bodyguards. This this body, the imperial German bodyguard, was abolished by Emperor Galba in 68 CE. Reasoning, they were maybe a bit too loyal to Emperor Nero, whom Galba had overthrown but the problem with the disbanded is the Batavi, the primary Germanic tribe providing these guards, found this as a major insult and instigated the Batavi Revolt in 69-70C. Not only will mercenaries switch sides for greater pay, but they will take it very unkindly if you do not hire them. The early imperial regime was not the last Roman entity to use northerners for imperial protection. Historian Kalina Fraga notes, Vikings are perhaps best known for plundering Western Europe and being the first Europeans to set foot in North America. But they also played a crucial role in the Byzantine Empire, a successor to the Eastern Roman Empire, where a select group of warriors called the Varingian Guard protected the emperor in Constantinople for hundreds of years. So around 980 CE, A dispute arises between the sons of Prince Vladislav I and his brothers for the throne of Kiev. To fight his brothers, Vladimir I of Kiev calls up 6,000 warriors from nearby Sweden. Not only did these soldiers help him conquer the region, but they also laid the foundation for the Varyngian Guard. Vladimir later converted to Greek Orthodox Christianity and lent his powerful guard to the Byzantine Emperor. Less than a decade later, Basil II of the empire contacted Vladimir for military aid. He needed help to defeat two would-be usurpers to his throne. Basil offered his sister's hand in marriage to sweeten the pot as long as Vladimir was willing to convert to that Greek Orthodox Christianity. That was not the last time the Byzantines hired mercenaries. First organized in 1302 by the adventurer Roger de Flore, the Catalan Grand Company was primarily composed of rugged Spanish veterans of the War of the Sicilian Vespers in Italy. Remember what I said earlier about big wars leading to the formation of these companies? Again, soldiers get a taste for for war and they find, well, geez, people are going to even pay me to do this. So, left unemployed at the conflict's end, Tiflor and his mercenaries contracted themselves to the Byzantine emperor Andronicus II, who brought them to the eastern Mediterranean to fight off invading Ottoman Turks. The 6,500 strong Catalans succeeded in sweeping the Turks away from Constantinople, but here's the problem. Their penchant for wanton sacking and looting also drew the ire of the Byzantines. So in 1305, De Florence, some 1300 men were ambushed and killed by other mercenaries. I love this stuff. By other mercenaries in the emperor's employ. And remember how I said that if you've been to the Vatican, you more than likely have seen a real live mercenary? Well, a small contingent Of 150 Swiss soldiers, Swiss soldiers of fortune began serving as papal bodyguards in 1506. At the time, Swiss pikemen were considered some of the most fearsome and effective soldiers on the continent. Yes, at one point, Switzerland, which is known for neutrality and not getting involved, was actually a pretty badass nation, and those pikemen were feared throughout Europe. So it made sense that if the Swiss were hiring them out, the, the popes would buy in. And the unit endured as the official watchman of the Vatican, even after Switzerland banned its citizens from working as mercenaries. Part of the problem which Switzerland figured out was you'd hire out all these guys, they'd go and find wars, they'd become, well, let's just say pretty fierce and uncontrollable, and then they'd come back home. Gee, what could possibly go wrong there? So Switzerland decided to ban its citizens from working as mercenaries. Today, you can still see them clad in their brightly colored Renaissance-era uniforms. The Swiss guards of today must be Roman Catholics. They must stand at least five foot, six inches tall. I love that one. And they need to have a military background. And though their role is often ceremonial, but in the past they've been required to fight to protect the Pontiff. During one attack on Rome in 1527, nearly four-fifths of the Swiss Guard were slain while defending Pope Clement VII from capture. And we get it. These guys wear those funky uniforms, sort of like the Buckingham guards in Britain. But again, because each of the Swiss Guards must have a, a military background and must pass to physical, they're actually, well, formidable guys in their own right. And as most of us have learned... Mercenaries feature in some notable moments in U.S. history. In the 18th century, conflicts within the German states and with other European powers created a body of well-trained and experienced soldiers, but hurt the feudal economy. So to alleviate this, the princes of the small German states often hired out their armies to supplement their incomes. German troops saw combat during the War of the Spanish Succession from 1701 to 1714 and during the Jacobite Rebellion in 1715, fighting for Great Britain under George I. And perhaps the best example of the peculiarities of the German states. I love, again, more fun with mercenaries. During the War for the Austrian Succession, which lasted from 1740 to 1748, German troops fought on both sides, some hired by Great Britain and others by France. When the war clouds of the American Revolution began to gather, Great Britain turned to the German states to provide much-needed manpower. After the Seven Years' War, Britain demobilized to alleviate the massive debt caused by the war, and many of these budget cuts came from the army to maintain that powerful navy that Britain realized it needed to protect its empire. When the revolution began, Britain needed trained soldiers to fight North America and throughout the empire, and therefore... Well, who's already trained? We could recruit a bunch of English guys and spend a year figuring out how to train them and get them over there, or we could just bring in the Germans. In North America, the German troops are often called Hessian mercenaries, but this is somewhat inaccurate. Now, Great Britain hired 34,000 of these German soldiers, of which more than half, 18,000, were from the Principality of Hess Castle. And The problem is is this resulted in all German soldiers being generalized as Hessians. It was many German states upon which these soldiers emanated. In this case, the term mercenary is not exactly accurate. In the modern sense, mercenary implies a soldier for hire who makes a large amount of money from their service. But the German soldiers had no choice. They were still in the army of their prince, who had decided to rent their services to a foreign power without the individual soldier's approval. While the German troops were well paid, they received no bonuses for service with Great Britain. As I have written many times, troops often do not fight for ideals. And as we have seen, one of the things they do fight for is pay. The one thing they almost always fight for is each other, the man next to them. But they can also fight for country, and though the Hessians could prove effective, as in the battles around New York and in the Revolutionary War, they could also be bested at Trenton and Saratoga as they were. What I find especially interesting is that between 40 and 50 percent of the German troops did not return home. Many of these were casualties, of course, but some chose to stay in the United States, drawn by the opportunity of freedom offered by the new nation. Now, we talk prominently of immigrants such as Irish and Italians, and more recently Latinos, but Germans were the first real kind of non-English immigrants. Take a look at prominent organizations from Merck to Levi's or city place names. For example, we have 26 Berlins in the U.S. And under the Wilson administration, German-Americans were discriminated against during World War I. As Wilson led on progressivism, well, he also led on discrimination, paving the way for the more famous Japanese internment under FDR in World War II. But I digress. And today, to the north of the old Byzantine Empire is Russia. And under the Tsars, they actually featured a group of of, uh, people called His Majesty's Own Cossack Escort. At the Battle of Leipzig in the Napoleonic Wars, soldiers from this regiment saved then-Emperor Alexander I of Russia from being captured by French forces under Napoleon Bonaparte. But technically, were the Cossacks really mercenaries, as they were part of the Russian Empire at the time? Well, this is the same kind of blurring of lines we see with auxiliaries summoned by the Persian great kings to serve in the Occamended Times. And with our introduction to Russia, let us now talk about mercenaries, not in faraway times like Medieval Italy, but last week in Russia. The Wagner Group was first identified in 2014 when it started backing pro-Russian separatist forces in eastern Ukraine. It is thought to have helped Russia annex Crimea in the same year. Wagner forces have also been active in Africa and the Middle East. Now, before the general war in Ukraine, which began in February of 2022, Wagner was believed to have only about 5,000 fighters, primarily veterans of Russia's elite regiments and special forces. So it's kind kind of a tough guy group. However, its numbers have grown considerably. How? By recruiting prison inmates from Russia for frontline combat. And now we are going to meet the leader, the founder, the one who came up with that brilliant idea for the Wagner Group to recruit convicts and arm them. This would be Yevgeny Prigozhin. When announcing his March for Justice in Moscow just last Saturday on June 24th, Yevgeny Prigozhin said he commanded over 25,000 troops. Obviously, there seems to be a lot of convicts in Russia, because he's, he's plumped out his forces pretty well. Although mercenary forces are technically illegal in Russia, Wagner registered as a company in 2022. <laughs> I would love to see their prospectus or their annual report. The U.S. said it would designate the group, however, as a transnational criminal organization in January of 2023. Prigozhin has repeatedly accused Defense Minister Sergei Shovu and the head of the armed forces in Ukraine, Valery Gersimov, of incompetence. He also refused an order from the Russian defense minister to sign a contract that would have put Wagner directly under its control. That's really what the the core of that fight was. That because Wagner Group was doing, well, a lot better than other Russian forces, and because Prigozhin himself was, well, let's just say he was getting restive and very vocal questioning decisions, not just from typical Russian defense officials, but all the way the, to the top. Yes, prigozhin was even questioning Vladimir Putin. Well, with all of this acrimony, one of the solutions from the defense officials and maybe from Putin himself was let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's integrate the more effective Wagner forces into the typical mainline Russian forces and let's get rid of prigozhin at the same time. Therefore, on June 23rd, and remember, as I am uh, doing this podcast, we're talking about eight days ago, on June 23rd, Prigozhin said top Russian defense officials had bombed Wagner groups in Ukraine, actually attacked them. And a day later, his troops seized control of the southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don, which was one of the main supply centers for the entire Russian army in Ukraine, and the Wagner group began their march to Moscow to remove the military leadership. Now, this march was aborted when Putin's puppet, the purported leader of Belorussia, Alexander Luchenko, brokered a deal. The plan is for Wagner to be integrated into mainline Russian armies, and Prigozhin can sit tight in Belarusia. Though, as many wags on Twitter would say, and I myself would as well, that Mr. Pergosian would do very well to never ascend any floor higher than the third floor and stay the heck away from windows. And for that matter, maybe hire a, a food taster or two. And to conclude, we're going to hear from Sean McFate. He's a professor at the National Defense University and the author of The Modern Mercenary. Mercenaries are the second oldest profession, (laughs) and there's a long history of mercenaries turning on their masters. This is indeed the problem of nation-states hiring mercenaries. The problem of private warfare is control and accountability, and you have very little of it, especially in a combat zone. This is a lesson known by Machiavelli, and now being learned by Putin as well thank you for listening to this latest conservative historian podcast and please check out all of our podcasts and on september 1st keep looking for some new information and new content from the conservative historian this is bell Avis thank you